Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, the chair of the committee. Tickets are now on sale for this year's festival, which features a great lineup of authors. For more information, visit marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. For now, enjoy this great session from the 2022 Book Festival. Kia ora, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Spy Valley Wines. Thank you so much for coming all this way. So cool to host groups again back in our cellar door, so we so appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. Spy Valley Wines is a really proud sponsor of the Marlborough Book Festival. Such an awesome weekend, and we've got a great session lined up for you guys. So our chair of this session is Tanya Miller. For years, Tanya was um, the children's librarian here in Marlborough. And now she manages the adult collection at the library. You may also spotted her treading the boards at the Boathouse Theatre over the years. Very cool. Thanks, Tanya, for being here to interview Kate DeGoldi. Over to you, Tanya. Thank you so much. Kia ora, tēnā koutou. Ko Tanya Miller aho. It's so lovely to be here with friends in this amazing place. Aren't we so lucky to live here? I'm so grateful to live Um, in this place. Um, Although this lady sitting here doesn't need too much um, of an introduction to this festival because she has been here before, um, I'm going to introduce her anyway. (laughs) Her name is Kate DeGoldi and the book that we're going to talk about today uh, is Eddie Eddie. If um, you haven't seen it, it's for sale over um, in the lovely Paper Plus stall. Um, I highly recommend you read it. Kate DeGoldi is New Zealand children's literature royalty. (laughs) She burst onto the literary scene in the 1990s by winning a short story competition. Hmm. That's what I've got here, sorry. Hmm. And buoyed by her success, began writing a literature for young adults. Her hard-hitting novels explored tough issues and continued to win Kate acclaim from readers and critics alike, which is a hard thing to do. But time and again, Kate has refused to be pigeonholed and her writing is adored by readers of all ages. So the adults got in on the scene. (laughs) Lucky them. In fact, she has yo-yoed back and forth from teen fiction with Love Charlie Mike Sanctuary and Close Stranger to books for middle readers with her sophisticated picture books, Clubs, The Lolly Leopold, I love saying that, um, books and Uncle Jack. She then wrote the 10pm question, which apparently has made her internationally famous. In my own lunchtime. Only that book? (laughs) I'm sure all of those other books as well. A story about a sensitive young man coming to terms with finding and losing a first love, as well as wrestling with his beloved mother's mental instability. This book won Kate international acclaim, but again, her writing refuses to adhere to genre and age-banding, a fact I absolutely love about her. Kate also has an astonishing knowledge of children's and young adults' literature and has enjoyed a regular slot on RNZ. Did anyone listen this morning? (laughs) So her first Christchurch earthquake novel was from the cutting room I always want to say floor Mm. of Barney Kettle, from the cutting room of Barney Kettle. And her latest book, Eddie Eddie, is again set in the literary landscape of Christchurch, two years post-earthquake, post-2011 earthquake. 
The novel follows yet another boy, well, he's a man really, who's just a little bit different. Eddie is mourning the loss of his dog Marley and trying to fill the hole by keeping busy with his growing pet-minding business. Eddie Eddie is full to the brim with memorable characters, including a foul-mouthed parrot called Mother. In fact, it is her full-hearted characters that make the sometimes painful plot bearable. I think I wrote this. (laughs) And even funny. And that's that that bittersweet, I suppose. Tina Coat. Sorry. So kia ora, Kate. Kia ora, Tanya. It's so lovely to have you here today. And excuse me while I fangirl, because seriously, I've, I've been a fan for a long time. And Kate and I have met before... And it's 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was bizarre because we met directly after the Christchurch earthquake. And I had to remind Kate that she couldn't remember me. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a fragile, febrile time. <laughs> yeah. So we ran a children's librarians conference here, a South Island children's librarians conference here. And I have a feeling it was a week after the, mm. after the earthquake, the February earthquake. And lots of people had come up here. Oh, lots of people yeah, from to the, live. Well, or temporarily well, too. Interestingly, we had a lot of people booked in for the conference, conference. that couldn't come because they were all Christchurch people. Because right. Christchurch libraries is, you know, huge. Mm. But you came, Kate, and I don't know if you remember, but you took me aside just before your talk. You'd written something. I can't remember what we asked you to write to talk about. Okay, you were probably the first speaker or something. I think I remember that. Yeah. And you put, took me aside and you said, "I've rewritten." Like it took you now, uh, you know, like you'd done it the night before you sat up all night or something, rewriting your your talk, mm. and it was all about Christchurch and growing up in, mm. in mm. Christchurch and that city that now lay in ruins. Yeah, and for me, um, Christchurch as a place has always been stitched to family and all the um, detail of my growing up. So it was a... Um, I mean, I've been living in Wellington for the last 25 years, but um, the visiting Christchurch often... And I was actually there for quite a few of the quakes because my parents were deteriorating. And um, it was a... It was... I mean, I don't really have the words for the feeling, but it was an enormous loss. You know, I used to feel a little bit um, unentitled to feeling loss about Christchurch because I wasn't living there, dealing with the day-to-day awfulness... But it was, a, um, yeah, it was a, it was a huge grief because everything was changed, and somehow for me it was tethered to, you, you know, childhood and and the places in my childhood that have been changed. So I, I still feel like that, yeah. And this book, Idi is it's really it's sort of stitched together with the the other cathedral that mm. isn't really talked about. No, well, you know, Christchurch is basically an Anglican town. And um, so to, be, to grow up Catholic in Christchurch was to be part of a um, minor sect, really. Um, you, it was just its own... Um, I see some nods. <laughs> um, it was its own world. And because I have 42 first cousins, that's practically a village. And um, so, and you know, we went to Catholic schools. It was, you know, it was quite a sectarian place. So um, our cathedral... Mm. was the beautiful one because it was a um, basilica. basilica. Yeah. Um, and so I've never had the same affection for the, uh, the, cath- the, the um, cathedral in the centre of town. But um, the, the dis- uh, destruction of that basilica was 
That was hard, yeah. So it was a very beautiful space. George Bernard Shaw commented on it very positively. I'll just hold on to that idea when he visited. Um, and it was, you know, um, built... What did he say? Do you remember what he, he just said? He thought it was a very beautiful mm. piece of um, architecture, uh, Romanesque, and as distinct from the sort of mini-Gothic that the other one was. And I spent many years in there going to Mass, going to funerals. And, um, yeah, somehow that became... Um, quite a sort of totem, the destruction of that cathedral. It was built off the backs of poor Catholic people, working class people, and um, I think it says something about the decline of the Catholic Church, that the current bishop's um, plans to do the same thing all over again, I'd say is highly benighted, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so mm. anyway, that's all part of it. Didn't yeah. something happen to the to the um, Virgin Mary, the statue? Yeah. Didn't she turn around or something? Yeah, there, there was a, um, a statue of the Virgin, you know, the usual blue and white um, Virgin. Um, I'm not actually sure, it was in a window, and it was, um, um, at any rate, during the shaking, it turned around to face the city, and there were quite a few pictures of it. Um, 180 degrees, yeah. from looking inward to looking yeah. outward. Um, make of that what you will. <laughs> we were talking about our superstitions yeah. before, weren't we? Yeah. Mm. And, mm. and so Eddie Eddie, he goes to a Catholic school. And he does. He goes to a Catholic secondary school. So did you go to a Catholic secondary school? I when did. You I'm were completely in immersed in Catholicism as a child. I went to a primary school called Our Lady of Perpetual Succor. I, yeah, I know. Great name. There's only about 90 children there, and half of them were my cousins. So it was. I had a really benign childhood in Catholicism, I really did. And that was partly because it was so um, inflected by and textured by music. My mother was the organist at the church and she started a children's choir. So music, and really good music, was a part of my um, understanding of Catholic ritual. We were taught by these glorious, quite physically beautiful Irish nuns with beautiful voices, the Holy Faith Sisters. And um, they were young, which I think was important. And and then I went off to St Mary's Secondary School, which is in the city, which no longer exists. It amalgamated with another school. So, um, yeah, that was my life. Um, but luckily, um, my mother had a my mother uh, was a musician. She was a uh, cellist, leader of the cello section in the Christchurch Symphony Orchestra for many years. And she had a wide circle of friends, um, many of whom weren't Catholic. I think it was, that was really important. And um, so one was always aware of another world. And, you know, in, in any way, sectarianism sort of faded by the end of the 60s and we emerged into what I still think of as the real New Zealand. Um, but uh, so the, whole, the workings of Catholic schools and the kind of workings of teenagers' minds over, um, within Catholic schools over the last 30 or 40 years, super familiar to me. Because yeah. Eddie, Eddie, sorry, I keep on saying Eddie, Eddie, Eddie... Eddie, Eddie's, can I just say, Eddie's name is Eddie Smallbone, oh. and um, the Smallbone um, was a really names are really important to me in um, books. And um, I knew Eddie's contours sort of came into view once I had the surname Smallbone. It's just such an hilarious name. It's gorgeous. And um, you know, can I just say something really quickly? The other day, I drove up behind a car. And on the number plate, it said, like, small bone something. Like, really? So it's a real name. This you know, is no, so bizarre. No, it is I've a real name. I've never heard that name before in my life, before I read your book. I, I heard about it's it from magic. my friend. And um, the man she knows who's called Mr. Smallbone, 
she uh, she she calls a Mr. Kleinerbeiner, which is sort of German for small bank, which I find very funny as well. So all that's in there too. You know, you just pick and um, choose all sorts of detail, little and large, from your life, and and it goes. So Eddie goes. He has left school in this, but we start the the book starts. Should we talk about when the book starts? Yeah. So. Do you want to read that, Kate? Shall we, yeah, sure. Shall we do yeah. that? Because Kate's um, going to read a little bit from the beginning of the novel. The book starts with the quote, the opening of A Christmas Carol. I mean, it's pretty, now that I think about it, it's actually pretty utterly to you know, borrow <laughs> Dickens's opening <laughs> lines. But, um, uh, and, and funnily enough, as you do, I mean, I've been listening to the um, story of A Christmas Carol since I was about five. I think that's when my mother bought the vinyl of A Christmas Carol starring Sir Laurence Olivier. And it was a recording that had been made at Drury Lane in the 1950s and then transferred to vinyl. It was a public performance. You transferred have to, to vinyl listen to it. With the most stirring music, um, Christmas carols and um, kind of ghostly spectral music. And um, we listened to it all the time. And we r- sort of ritualistic ritualistically when I say we it was me and my sisters and often my father who on every Christmas would be on the floor on the day before Christmas unravelling the Christmas tree lights which had been put away in a hurry and he was very patient and he'd sit there cross-legged and we'd be decorating the tree and listening to Sir Lawrence and you know we as you do we knew the words off by heart and it's just a fabulous salad of language you know Um, and I I just used to I I once told my children this story and uh, forever confirmed for them that I was pathetic when I was a child, but I used to lie in bed saying some of the adjectives from Dickens, uh, from the Christmas Carol, squeezing, wrenching, clutching, covetous old sinner. I mean, you know, what a, what a great bit of poetry. And um, so I just assumed everyone would know the opening to this, um, but my publishers assured me not everyone did, so they've got a proper um, epigraph from A Christmas Carol. So this begins in September 2012. Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt whatsoever about that. Eddie's uncle got to the immortal words first. It was a quotation begging to be said that day. One of them had to say it, Eddie supposed. Brain grabbed the moment. Funny, really, since Brain was a slow thinker and mover most of the time. But he spoke the second they settled into the car. Then he shut the passenger door softly, a full stop. Brain did most things carefully, even delicately, this could sometimes make Eddie itch. Maybe he'd been waiting to s- years to say it. Maybe all that time ago he'd named Marley just so he could say the line when Marley died. Only now he said it wrong. No doubt whatever, said Eddie. Really, for a research librarian, brain could be surprisingly imprecise. He often fluffed song lyrics and quotes. No so. Are you sure? Positive. Brain looked at Eddie. His baffled animal look the raccoon eyebrows bending inward. He seemed to be staring at Eddie's forehead as if he was trying to make out the words etched there or something. Proof. Marley was dead. Eddie paused. Colon, said Brain with a wan smile. Marley was dead, colon, to begin with. There was no doubt whatever about that. Some people have argued that that's the most famous colon in the English um, literature. There really wasn't any doubt. Marley was in the back seat, head resting on her old pillow with its stains and holes and sprouting kapok. She was wrapped in the kaipoi pure, kaipoi pure wool blanket. The blanket was Eddie's sole inheritance from his unknown maternal grandmother. He 
He'd donated it to Marley when she was a pup, and it had been her bed rug for as long as anyone could remember. It was all felted up from years of washing, spattered with ragged holes from Marley's unclipped claws. She liked to rough up the rug before she slept. She poured at it, bunched it into little hillocks, then thumped down onto it, exhaling noisily, her long nose between front paws. Memories of snow, Brain told Eddie all those years ago. The reptilian brain remembering Labrador. You know, all the snow, how they pour up the snow for warmth. Labrador, where labs come from, said Brain, unnecessarily. Every moment, a teaching moment. Labrador habits, dreamtime lore, the Jesuits' misdeeds in China, lines of poetry, misquoted probably, now that Eddie thought about it, the arguments for and against veganism, the meaning of thanatology. It had been all all right when he was young, Eddie supposed. He couldn't stand it these days. Marley's old rug would go with her now into the ground beneath the wattle in the backyard, where she'd lain in the shade all the hot afternoons of Eddie's life. He'd already prepared the hole, spent half the morning marking out the plot and digging, manufacturing a decent sweat. It was sweltering by 11am, a breathless, pressing heat, though it was only September. Eddie had derived a grim enjoyment from the liquid gathering under his cap, leaking unpleasantly down his neck and back. He imagined it glistening in the sun, a moist and manly rebuke to brain. One of them was practical, the sweat said. One of them had borrowed the spade from next door and prepared the grave. Not that Brain had been watching. He was inside with Marley, contemplating the animal soul, saying a prayer, no doubt. In the car now, Brain still stared, dwelling on the quotation, listening to it in his head. Everything in Brain's head happened at Adagio. Marley was dead. To begin with, he said again. There was no doubt whatever about that. Eddie had been at the death. Brain too. But only Eddie watched. Brain laid a big white hand on Marley's flank but stared fixedly at the poster on the otherwise bare clinic wall, an image of a gadfly petrel, a slant against a blue sky. Eddie held Marley's shabby left forepaw. It had given her jip for years. She couldn't manage a run longer than three k's without developing a limp, a Marley limp, graceful and apologetic. He massaged the the furless patch on the side of the paw with his thumb. He watched Marley's face, the grizzled muzzle all slack now, her lovely eyes gummy with sickness. At the same time, from the corner of his eye, he watched the vet expertly filling the syringe. It's very quick, the vet said, and completely painless. Eddie doubted the vet knew this for sure, not being a dog. It was Fat Vet. He was in practice with his brother, Thin Vet. Fat Bob and Thin Tim. Yeah, but shut up, Fat Vet, Eddie thought. Don't talk. He liked Fat Vet well enough. He liked him much better than Thin Vet, who was terse and kind of bitter. But Eddie didn't want Fat Vet talking, not while Marley was getting the needle. He wanted it to be just Marley's sounds, her little snuffles and wheezy exhalations, the occasional tail thwomp, pathetically tired. He wanted to hear her breathing right to the end. Fat Vet obliged. He said nothing. He felt round with his competent sausage fingers for the soft gap in Marley's neck and slid the needle neatly into the cavity. And Marley was as dead as a doornail. In less than a minute, no doubt, whatever. Except, said Eddie now, it isn't to begin with. It's the end. The end of an era. The Marley era. Marley was dead. Full stop, that end. He started the car and pulled out into the road, pitted and hummocky like so many of the roads in the area. 
Even at normal speed, the going was bumpy. Today, the traffic ambled, befuddled by the heat. The air was hazy, filled with spores. The city is comatose, thought Eddie. He imagined flooring it, frightening all the dozy motorists, driving somewhere at great speed. He pictured the long, straight roads north of town, the magical vanishing point. But really, you couldn't floor a Suzuki Alto with any conviction. Marley was dead to end with, said Brain, trying it out. Eddie felt the familiar spike of irritation with his duffer uncle, with Brain's over-deliberate enunciation, his ponderous, as he called them, cerebrations. He felt the evil little urge that visited him sometimes to pinch Brain somewhere painful. To begin with is better, said Brain, oblivious. God closes a door, opens a window. If he closed his eyes, thought Eddie, they might end up in the river, sink into the silted up bottom, let the water close over the Suzuki Alto, their banana-coloured coffin. Amen, amen. <coughs> Lift up your heads, O ye gates, sang Brain through the windscreen into the suburban middle distance. Mm. I, I, didn't, I really didn't think what it was like beginning a book with a dog being put down. It was just very useful for my purposes. It kind so. of reminded me, do you remember the curious incident of the dog in the yes. night time? Yes. And that dog, and, and there's another book that I know of The Knife of Never Letting Go, and he yes. talks to the dog in the beginning. Mm. There's something about Dogs mm. and boys. Definitely, yeah. And I've watched dogs with family members all my life. My dirty secret is that I don't really have any feelings for animals. Really? Um, I mean, I don't feel mean towards them, but I don't really... Um, That's why you can kill them. I, can't, I, just can't, <laughs> I just can't summon the same thing that my sisters, my kids, my mother did, but I've watched them mm. all my life, and I've, I kind of like the animals of the people that I like and love. So. And it's interesting, because animals feature in quite a few of your books. They do, yeah. I mean, I mean, they're completely fascinating, but I, I feel like I've got a forensic fascination with them, not really a mm. loving one, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And they're incredibly useful in story. So where did that, this, the idea come from for this book? Like, where did that first chapter... Did you write the chapter first? I did. That chapter? I'd known for a long time that I wanted to write a book about... Um, a child who has been brought up by someone other than his parents. And um, the actual sort of remaking of family is quite a feature in a number of my books. Um, and, you know, so I lived with that idea for years. And I also knew at some point that he would be, an, he would be a pet walker or pet minder, um, which would, gave me the opportunity to do what I do best, which is have my characters wandering around thinking. And um, so um, that was there. And then, um, and that idea came from an interaction with a friend who had a, um, was taking a parrot, I think, to the um, vet because the parrot was constipated, which for some reason I thought was very funny. And um, so that's just, things started to sort of um, come together with that. And then because the earthquake and the cataclysms in the landscape and in the culture of Christchurch happened. Inevitably, my own writing happened because everything I ever write is always set there. So, um, and then suddenly I knew that it would be in 2012. And I usually start just with those sorts of ingredients. I had my 
my person and I kind of knew where I wanted him to end up emotionally but I didn't know how he would get there but that's usually enough for me. Mm. You're quite interested in sort of broken people too, you know, people who have had, who have grieved or people who are going through some quite, you know, big issues. Why do you think that is? I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, you know, once you're old enough, you've had grief in different ways mm. yourself. Um, but I think, um, in some ways, my interest in children's literature, and it's more than an interest, really, it's probably a sort of mild obsession, reading it and writing it and thinking about it, I mean, I think the very essence of children's literature is that it is about grief. It's about the loss of childhood. And, um, I mean, the great classics of children's literature, Peter Pan is a, a shining example. They are about loss of childhood. And, um, and it's not for nothing that they were written by Victorians who were sort of child men themselves, mm. kept um, infantile by the crazy schooling and class system of England. Um, but I think... Um, I think I found the fall into adolescence and adulthood extremely hard, and I've kind of always mourned the summer of my childhood. I mean, which doesn't mean I'm a disabled person, but it's just always been there as a seed for writing. But I've also known large numbers of people with mental illnesses. Mm. I was going to say, because you wrote the 10pm question before Christchurch, you know, yeah. all of the trauma and, you know, things mm. like that happened. and, and I knew a lot of people really who'd had... Um, parents with mental illness mm. and the thing that always struck me about you know of course there's damage and um, loss around that but many of the people I knew had actually survived and were um, had been formed by it in ways that weren't all bad and um, so I don't see mental illness as a death sentence you know at all um, and I knew I knew a lot of um, kind of damaged or afflicted young young people when I was young, especially young men, which is kind of mm. where this book comes from as well. Because even just loss, you know, not even having sort of like a... But having that great grief, you know, mm. parents dying, you know, like you've got quite a few characters in your books that both of their parents have died. And yeah, well, what happens to a person mm. after that? Well, mm. Eddie, Eddie is an orphan. Yeah. And he's been brought up by Brain, who's a research librarian, as you... I going to have a librarian brain. in there somewhere. When I read, <laughs> when I read that, mm. I had to read Brain a few times before I got it. And I was, no, that's Brian. That's Brian. Mm. No, it's Brain. Um, but really, really it, clever. It is. But also librarian. You can, you know, transpose mm. those letters and things like, you know, it's Brain. You can too. <sighs> See? The reader tells you things about your own book. Yeah. But Brain is his... Guardian, and then also what happened tragically, which is right at the beginning, so it's not a spoiler at all, is, um, is, is Brain's mother dies. So Doris, Brain's mother, dies at the beginning. It's, it's, it's not a tragedy because no one likes Yeah, but her. that's the thing. Yeah, <laughs> Especially Eddie. <laughs> I, I, so, I feel like you want to be able to say that you didn't like someone and you're not sorry when they died, you know? Because everyone must feel it at some point. You say it a few times in your book, Kate. <laughs> well, Eddie's feeling lots of bile and um, he's just not mincing his words when he's thinking about um, Doris. But, you know, that's just his view, of course, and mm. the, the point of the book at different times is to turn the Rubik's Cube. Mm. And, I mean, another there's direction. another character in the story 
um, that is unlikable by everybody else but Eddie. Mm. So Eddie has a best friend um, that he has a very intense relationship with. Um, and his girlfriend admits, you know, she doesn't like him. He's not a very likable person. He's damaged. Yeah. Yeah. But again, he's also he's also exciting. He is. Yeah. But again, it's sort of a little bit of bad parenting. Yeah, and someone's pulled me up on that, actually, um, uh, um, on the creeping judgment that comes into my books about parenting. Um, and But I suppose what it really is, and, you know, who knows? It may be myself I'm judging. Um I suppose it's partly sociological observation. It's um, neglect. It's not just the children of the um, underprivileged who maybe have neglected because their parents don't have skills or have to work mm. or whatever. Um, absolutely not. Um, I mean, what I'm talking about here is people's assumptions about that sort of thing. Um, there's the um, neglected well- wealthy. And I've seen it a lot. And it's t- there's twice. That's twice mm. in this book. Because mm. Eddie... Um, through his dog walking business or pet minding business, he becomes a um, almost de facto parent for a for a family mm. um, that is r- a little dysfunctional. The father's left, mm. and Eddie is uh, becomes um, kind of reluctantly attached to um, Delphine, the uh, the daughter of the house, and she's just a child, and she's um, invasive and. Um, he can't, he loves her. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know he loves her, but he does come to love her. Yeah, and she's a focus for him. Um, in this, she's she's a damaged pet. And yeah, I mean, she's not she's human, but you know what I mean. It's this part of a continuum of adults and pets that he's mm-hmm. picking up. Because her mother works really hard yep. to try and make money for the fa- well, you know, make mm-hmm. a lot of money, mm-hmm. like. Not just to survive, but make it so they can live in kind of luxury, and the, and it's that thing, that modern thing of, of working really hard, but then you know everything that's bought is like, um, you know, processed for you know like for dinner. It's just like you know she just they only it's a they only bit, eat white food. Yeah. Actually, I mean this is really judgmental. Um, uh, look, I mean I don't I don't want to make too much of these things, but they're sort of I guess they're sociological observations, um, you know. Lot, not a lot of cooking is done in lots of houses. Well, because she's busy working. She's yeah. working all the hours. But also people don't take the time often to introduce their children leisurely to... Because they don't have the time. Yeah, it's, it's to do with the, you know, it's to do with the socioeconomic setup of our lives. And we're all so busy doing mm. everything. Mm. But Eddie becomes the, almost the de facto parent, doesn't he? And, yeah. And yeah. he reads to them. Yeah. Um, because that's what Brian's done. Eddie's furiously Brain. trying to run away from bri- Brain. Sorry, yeah, Brain. <laughs> Eddie's um, trying to get away from Brain, as all children have to get away from mm. their parents, you know, um, at some point. And, um, but it, he's stymied because of the circumstances of the city, but also because he's absolutely attached to Brain in, in ways that he can't even bear to acknowledge. And um, so... He's decided that the only way he can get away from brain is by having work in the evenings and just not going home that much. And um, so it suits him to um, become more enmeshed in Delphine and Jasper's lives. And, of course, in the course of um, becoming close to them and looking after them, being responsible for them. He's actually quite... He's a bit of a fascist about parenting. He's got all these views. Um, 
and so he wants to improve their diet and most of all he wants them to have the the benison of reading as he did I mean it's just automatic he doesn't even really think about it he just does mm. it automatically and um, and it's so interesting because he's trying to get away from those things but he's also mm. it's just who he is well and it's because we're all helps, helpless creatures of our parenting aren't we so um, yeah yeah And then, Wait, are we are we nearing a spoiler here? Well, I don't. Want I don't care I, myself, but you may. Um, well, the problem is, is that the book only came out on Thursday, so very few of you would have had a chance to read it, unless you're a really incredibly fast reader. There's another narrator in the book. I'll just put it out there, mm. um, uh, and uh, it's. It's an old girlfriend of Eddie's who comes back on the scene. Is that where you were going? Kind of. Yeah. Mm. And, and so, well, I was sort of thinking about all the families that Eddie has. So he has this, um, his best friend's family. He has his new adopted family that he's, well, he, that have adopted him almost. Mm. And then he's got his um, lovely dysfunctional brain's family. Because it's not only brain that lives in this family. There's mm. the three... Stooges, yeah, the three. <laughs> so Brain's um, theory godparents. Uh, Brain's cousin Ginge, um, who's a union worker, and they're both bachelors. And you know, that old-fashioned word that is sort of never used anymore. Um, but they've, they've never, they've never married. But they haven't really had relationships either. Mm. Ginge has, but his heart was broken early on. And there's Bridgie, who's um, an old friend from school. They're all old school days friends. And they also went to school with a guy called Chris Mangan, who's a priest, the modern priest, he's called in the book, who is Eddie's antagonist, basically. He, he, he can't bear him. And I see those four um, as sort of survivors of Catholicism, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are very definitely um, my age. Um, so in some senses, I'm writing about my cohort. Because they went to the same school as Kate. <laughs> yeah, I went I, I, to the holy. What's it called? Sucker. The sucker yeah. Um, so um, yeah, that's his um, newly stitched family, and they sort of helped Brain bring up Eddie. And um, yeah, they've been in and out of his life. So he's got all of these families, and then Boo comes on back mm-hmm. onto the scene. But f- before that, he has Sue Lombardo. <gasps> oh my goodness. Yeah. So Sue Lombardo. So. This is roughly worked around the grid of A Christmas Carol in which Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, is visited by the ghosts of Christmas present, past and future. And I don't want to make too much of this, but very roughly, Delphine, Boo and Sue Lombardo represent Mm. those ghosts, three females. Um, And Sue Lombardo is um, a nun who lives in the community. She's independent and she's a Jungian psychotherapist. And um, she's been... Um, in Lima, Peru. She's an amalgamation of three nuns that I've known and loved. And, um, and she and has a parrot, and the parrot was the foul-mouthed parrot that I alluded to in the introduction. And the parrot is called Mother, but it's not just Mother, is it? The real the name is the... Mother Julian, um, Julian of Norwich, who was um, uh, an early Christian, or medieval Christian and an anchorite, and um, Sue Lombardo has named the parrot mother before she knew the gender was male. So, um, so you know, playing with kind of dualities and, um, 
and really, he, m- mother's just a sort of disruptor in the narrative for fun as much as anything. Because he swears a lot. Mm. Yeah. And what's really sweet is that the Delphine, the lovely Delphine, has an older brother, Jasper, and Jasper and mother become friends. So there's different sorts of... He- I suppose there's different sorts of healing going on in the book. Jasper can't really communicate very well with people. He's just a gamer who plays with people across the globe. Do you know people like that? Um, is he based on someone that you know? Not really. Because I, no. know, I know people like yeah. that. Young men like that. Well, yeah, well, I mean, we, we do know about young men in their mm. rooms playing games. But they're real, you know, yeah. like we think about them, but they're actually, they are yeah. out there. But he just hasn't been properly, he hasn't been properly loved because his stepfather was horrible. So, um, yeah, so the bird helps Jasper and Jasper helps the bird and everyone's helping everyone. Sounds quite syrupy, doesn't it? It's really um, nice. But it's, I hope it's not. Yeah. And what I find really interesting is that Eddie's a very clever young man. Obviously, he's, a, he's smart, he's intelligent. Mm. And what he wants to do is he wants to walk dogs and work at New World. And I find that really interesting. You mean he hasn't gone to university? No, I just find it really interesting that that is what his brain wants to do at this point of his life, mm. is he wants to have a menial job. Yeah, um, and it's okay. Well, of course it's okay. Um, and actually, it's sort of what um, not, not, my son didn't have a menial job, but he was really clear he didn't want to go to university, mm. and um, worked for seven years in hospo. And um, a lot of people um, were doubtful about that, but I had kind of faith that he knew what he was doing. And indeed, I was a late developer in that respect. So. But also, Eddie doesn't want to think anymore because clearly he's running away from things he needs to think about. And he's had the parents, he's had the mm. earthquake, you know. Mm. But it's interesting with the parents because he feels like he can't remember them. Well, no, yeah. because um, he, he's basically posthumous. His father died before he was born. And so he looks at a picture of them and he doesn't feel anything. No, brain's his parent. Brain's yeah. his parent. I sort of wanted to make that point. Par- mm. Parenting isn't just, it isn't exclusively biological. Yeah. It just isn't. And I also... Um, I mean, Eddie's gone looking for other parents. And that, that was the sort of... I've noticed that over the years. That's the feature of... And it should be a feature of young people's lives that at the moment they're walking away from their parents as they must, they often adopt new kind of parenting. And I certainly did that. Um, and I'm grateful to many older people who kept me safe and kind of loved in the times that I was, um, you know, wanting to keep my parents at a distance. And certainly people did that for my kids too. So he's in that... He's in, a, he's in stasis because, you know, the cities. In my memory, I was in the city a lot in the um, two years after the earthquakes, and it was desolate, you know, and the, the desolation um, filtered through into one's own. Everyone was sad. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, they were um, brought low by so many difficulties, but they were also sad. And. Um, so that's where he's at too. Yeah. yeah, and I, you know, there's a lot of sort of traffic because he does a lot of travelling. <laughs> he's in a around. car a lot. Another way of having people just think. And I remember those roads. They were like, yeah. like they were. It was. It was and like being in a bo- like after a war or yeah. something. And what I'm and the lo- the other antagonist in the novel are the orange cones because um, that's what I remember mostly was every time I was in Christchurch, they were never in the same place twice. You'd make a route. And the next day, it wouldn't be the same as it was the day before. It was just, it just, and road rage was just 
I mean, people were very good, really, but I used to feel incandescent when I was um, stopped from going down a road. So it was a time of frustration, but kind of comedy as well. Mm. So um, it, was, it was very, very interesting. And whole parts. I mean, I'm quite haunted by the loss of Avonside and Dallington. I go there ritualistically sort of to pay tribute to the, the lost houses and the lost people. It's, it's really something. So, I mean not a good thing to put it this way, but in a strange way, what happened to Christchurch, because it is my imaginative landscape, has sort of given me a whole sort of wellspring of feelings about place and people, which has you know, been quite fertile for writing. Mm. So, And Kate, this is very much an adult novel. Are you going to say that? I'm not going to say what it is. <laughs> I'm going to say that a book you, do is... You not, do you not believe in saying that? I really don't. I agree. No, I agree. Yeah, um, I mean, a book is a book. I read... But there's quite a few, like... I mean, I'm thinking of, like, the sex scenes. Yeah, well... I, I mean, I wouldn't probably want my nine-year-old to read that. But your nine-year-old doesn't want to read it. And it's probably... She, yeah. Well, yeah. Hmm. I don't reckon. No. I mean, I, I read inappropriately all my life mm. and I just filtered out the stuff I didn't want to know yeah. um, I read my way through my parents very adult bookshelf at a very young age so um, I don't really I don't want to be irresponsible about this I mean every parent has their own view and the right to decide what, what they want their children to read but my experience is that children often filter stuff uh, or just I mean, I've had... My whole reading life was, don't get that, turn the page, think about it later, you know, um, when I was a child. Um, and I didn't really mind if I didn't know what a word meant. It just sort of lived as a piece of music in my head as much as anything, and context would of, often tell you. So, and I understand the need for um, uh, categories for publishers and bookshops. You know, it's just the way it goes. I suppose what and I libraries. Would, the only thing I would think about is sort of like non-fiction-y type things, like um, like Olive, my daughter, wants to read Anne Frank. Mm. And I'm just a little unsure about that at this point, you know? Like I sort of thought that whole Holocaust thing, I don't, I'm just... I'm, and that's for me, because mm. I just think once you read that, you can't not know it anymore. No, but I suppose I don't... Yeah, I kind of don't really believe in don't protecting... Care. The, well, I don't care. It's not that I don't care, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, hmm, it's an interesting one. I mean, I'm the person who was obliged or felt obliged to explain to my children what was going on with President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky because my daughter asked me. Because she asked you, yeah, yeah, and that's the um, thing. Mm. And... Uh, I mean... They find it out everywhere else mm. as well. So I used to say at the library, I used to say to people, is it okay for my, you know, precocious... Well, you know, they wouldn't say precocious, but, you yeah. know, like my well-read child, my very advanced child... Mm, of course. To read, <laughs> ..to read from the teenage section, and I mm. would say, look, it's completely up to you. I would read it first if you were worried. Mm. That's what I used to say to them. Mm. And, you know, goodness knows what happened to those yeah. children. Yeah, and I mean, it is often really useful to read, to read books with your children. Totally um, agree. Sort of adjacent to them or literally with them. But uh, there was one thing that I read. We read a, a really, they're cool series. They're called a Born Free series, and they're about real stories about um, animals getting um, saved 
from really ha- horrible mm. hardship, you know. And there was a there was a line in the book, mm. and I didn't read it to my two children. Mm. I just because I read I read it ahead, mm. and I was, and I didn't read it. And it was about this poor chimpanzee's hands on a table in a um, market. Mm. And why I didn't read it? Well, I know, and I just thought I couldn't. Well, no, mm. why I didn't read it is because those the actual people that wrote that book didn't know that they were they were supposing that does happen, mm. but they didn't know in that instance that that was happening. So I just didn't read it. Yeah, I mean, of course you want to um, ex- you want to be able to explain because that hurt me. That hurt my feelings. But anyway, I basically believe in the sort of wanton exploration that unsupervised reading can offer, and. But, you know, I know it's not for everyone. But in terms of my own books, I just think, um, it, you know, they're for a certain kind of reader. They'll find their readership, one hopes, if one's lucky. Mm-hmm. And um, also, um, you know, children's literature has everything in it, um, everything that adult literature has in it. It's just the way it's handled. And um, God knows there's plenty of sort of existential... Um, dark picture books it's you know a book is a book mm. yeah I can't remember what I, I was thinking goodnight Mr Tom that's, that's the book that I read that I couldn't get that scene out of my head mm. yeah yeah but that's, I, that, that's the power of the I book is, and the power is, of the story yeah overactive imaginations mm. so Eddie Lives his life. He lives his life with these with these people around him. But he's looking for. He's sort of going through a bit of a. Would you say an existential crisis? Do you think he's for sure? Do you uh, think he's still religious at the end of the book? Is, I, I think what he has is a desire for something transcendent, but he can't believe in the tenets of the faith that he's been brought up in. Um, he's thoughtful. He has an instinct for prayer and some link to something beautiful through music. Um, and as Bridgie, his um, father, uh, his uncle's old friend, he says he's agnostic. And, um, and Ginge, his um, cousin, first cousin once removed, um, says he's an atheist. And Bridgie says the same. But they all miss God. Not God. But um, they miss something evanescent that they can't put their finger on that that represented, but their rational selves um, can't be doing with it anymore. And, I mean, it absolutely mirrors my own experience, Mm. um, which... uh, So it's something intrinsic in you, do you think, that you'll never... Because you grew up like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's... There's, um, there'll always be um, a kind of un- uncertain... I mean, I'd, I'm, I'm done with organised religion. There's mm. definitely that. Um, or at least with um, uh, the clericalism represented by the Catholic Church. And, um, but there was much that was beautiful and um, enriching about it as well, not least the ritual and the music. And prayer. I, I really, I'm, I'm really interested in prayer. And I'm interested in religions, you know. So, but it's a seesaw, and um, well, there's I've so many good things about it. You know, there's so many good things about religion, like the singing. You know, I just think 
the yeah. music and the churches. And the thing, the thing I like the most about, not about religion exactly, but the idea of something transcendent is it gives you a holiday from yourself. The thing I used to like about going to Mass was I sat there and I did not think about myself. And I like that. But I think it's a gene, you know. Mm. Um, you have it or you don't. Um, and upbringing has quite a bit to do with it. And I'll be arguing with it for the rest of my life, probably. But, um, and I've seen it, you know, again and again. I talk about it with, you know, all my cousins. And, and, and some funny. of them are badly damaged by it. Um, and um, I was just lucky that I wasn't. But, um, I mean, you cannot look at the depredations of the Catholic Church and clerics over the last 40 years and not feel that you must, you know, say enough is enough. You just can't. So, you know, it's an unpleasant and ridiculous patriarchy. Mm. <laughs> so that's it for me. But that doesn't mean I don't believe in spirituality. And, and the ritual. Yeah, yeah. Like brain in the story, when is it after Marley dies and he has that ceremony? Or is that for Doris? Um, when he brings out the... The candles. And oh, the yeah, brain's having it. Yeah, the modern they have priest, a wake, wake almost, do they? Yeah, they're sort of memorial service, and the modern priest never misses a chance to perform at the altar, so he's been pulled in um, to do it. And, and he's an interesting character in your book. <laughs> That's because he's been, disgraced. he's been disgraced from the... Yeah. But w- did he steal $1,000? Is that what he did? Is that what I read? He, st- he stole thousands, yeah. Thousands yeah. of dollars. Yeah. So... He this, in fact, did happen at the Catholic Cathedral in Christchurch. The administrator of the Catholic Cathedral stole thousands of dollars. Um, so, you know, I'm not making it up. Mm. Um, he's not that priest, but he's, um, he's sort of a, a damaged and slightly absurd man with certain talents and charisma. And he's unanchored in the way so many priests are to people. Um, they only have the fraternity that is their other slightly damaged and... Um, Odd friends, not all priests, obviously, but you know, a good few. So he's and look, I've known men like that all my life. Mm-hmm. I've I've um, I've known dozens of priests of different shapes and hues, and um, I'm kind of fascinated by the distortions that have occurred in their personalities as a consequence of being in the church. Um, so while I have a sort of cultural affinity with much of that. Um, I can't resist the urge to mock it as well. And Eddie just fear hates it. So um, as so many adolescents do, they just feel um, the hypocrisy is just sort of patent for them. So he's in, he's in revolt against that as well. Mm. Mm. I did, I, the book has been bought by an American publisher and I will be interested to see how that's dealt with um, because, as we all yeah. know... <laughs> Um, God is, or, you know, organised religion is um, kind of, I mean, much more seriously part of American culture than it is here. This is a really secular country, really. But, um, but on the other hand, there's a great stream of anti-Catholicism through America, so perhaps it'll mm. find its... Um, but there's other themes in the, in the book, too. Oh, without, yeah. I mean, it's, without, just, a, it's know, just a part of it, yeah. Spoiling mm. anything. That will probably be a challenge over there as well. It's always a challenge because you have to get translated into American, um, which is um, always interesting. Well, there's not a lot of moms. <laughs> no, but, you know, the Tempion Question and um, ACB of Nora Lee were published by the same publisher, and um, 
there were such interesting um, interactions with the editor about small pieces of um, New Zill that you don't even think about, um, which things that needed to be explained. But they're very respectful, excellent publisher. I mean, they don't they don't Americanize it really. Um, so, yep. Do they do a big print print run? I don't know yet. No idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just nice to have someone else pick it up. Yep. I'm just conscious of the time, um, and before I have any more questions for Kate, I thought I would um, open the floor to you, um, because I'm sure you have some. I'm just thinking, we've got a microphone for questions, but I'm just wondering if you would like to answer, ask a question, sorry, <laughs> we'll get Kate to answer them. Um, if you wouldn't mind taking your mask off, that would be, that would be helpful. Um, so we've got Sophie over here, if anyone would like to... A burning question. I would just like to have a, a chat about words in your book. Mm-hmm. Language. You're, well, even words. I like, feel like, do you go to bed with a dictionary? <laughs> it's a wonderful word. I'm going to try and find it now in my notes. I, 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 I mean, I guess I was just always um, entranced by language from a very young age. And that's... Partly because my father was the son of immigrants and English was spoken only brokenly mm. in their house. And his great, the English language was his great passion. Um, and as I've thought of it over the years, I realised that it was, it was his way of becoming a New Zealander, was to kind of own the language. And not for nothing, he became a lawyer, so he could use, you know, multi-syllable words. And... He, yeah, so I was always spoken to in a really adult lexicon by both my parents. I, I remember I was the only person in Standard One who knew what a rhetorical question was. Because my mother used to say when she, when she asked something, and by the way, that's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they were, my parents were really literate and they had great vocabularies and they, they did speak to us with a broad lexicon. So it was a gift. And... Um, and I read a lot, so that's really... And when I first started writing for young people, for adolescents, um, a few people would say, this, um, you know, this is may maybe too much for adolescents, the language in this book, but I just don't buy it. I mean, if, no. we, don't, if we don't set a high bar for young readers, what's the point? Do you know, I got a... Um, and don't feel bad about me for this, dear audience... When I had my baby, I got a Kindle mm. because I could read at night time and mm. when I was breastfeeding, and mm. that's what I wanted to do, so I did. Anyway, the best thing about my Kindle is that I could press on a word. And it would define and it, it for would you. tell me mm. what it Yeah, that was. is really great. It is so wonderful. And I didn't have to have my little dictionary mm. by my bed in, anymore. Mm. And um, I have to say, in Kate's book, I did have to look up quite a few words but and do you, do you think you really did or could you have just slid no. past them so this right. was one of the words cruciferous now I thought oh that's got to be something religious you know to do with the crucifixion or something like that the crucifix do you know what it means Is it, can anyone quite tell me pardon what's the word again cruciferous cruciferous it's in the cabbage family yeah it's in the cabbage family <laughs> 
Well, I laughed out loud when I read my that. My view of this is that if the word isn't naturally known to the child, they can just, or the young reader, or even the old reader, <laughs> they can just enjoy its sound and look initially. Yeah, I thought the context. I love kind of that word because it's. Um, no, I know you're right. Mm, absolutely mm. right. I just, you know, because it was so. It, it sounded like something else that it completely wasn't. Mm, mm. Something to do with a cabbage. I, what I wonder is, would you ask me that question if, if um, I'm just speculating here, if it was an adult, if it was a so-called adult novel? Um, I mean, I don't know why we have this division between what adults. Uh, allegedly supposed to take in and, um, and what children might... I mean, I, the, the body of children's literature that I read as a young person was just packed to the gunnels with interesting vocabulary. It used to be. What I think has happened... It is no longer. Yeah, I was going to say, that's exactly mm. what's happened. Is mm. So, um, uh, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, why, that's why I love words, you know. But all, I mean, like all writers, because we've read... I mean, scratch a writer and there's a reader behind them. So, and we're sort of hungrily searching them out. But also, obviously, in here, it's the legacy of living with brain. It is is lexicon is directly from brain, who is almost certainly my father in disguise. Mm. Yeah. So you said... My father did actually used to use the word cerebrations. He had some just hilarious... um, Vocabulary, yeah. And Eddie will be thinking something and he'll go, oh, that's a brain word. Mm. Here's a question. Hi. Hi, Rachel. Hi. I was just following on from what you were saying about um, language not appearing in books. Do you think that's because publishers are resistant to it? I do. It's I, I this do. whole age banding thing is it as well, you know? Like it's just saying this, a, it's is a, a, this is a book for a six Yeah, three it's to a six faulty assumption old. about what children can allegedly bear. Um, and I would argue and have argued many times that we underestimate. Um, and, you know, I know publishers have a lot to think about, not least the bottom line. And, but, you know, there was a period in the middle of the 20th century when children's publishing, well, it was a, an astonishing golden age, and the editors um, were steeped in literature broadly, and their mission was publishing for children, but they brought everything of the adult world to those books and to their publishing. Uh, Ursula Nordstrom, the American publisher, is a perfect example of that. And E.L. Koenigsberg, the children's writer, sadly dead now, from the United States, who was just really interesting. In an essay of hers, I once read her saying, I make every effort to stretch the limits of the world and the language that my children are reading because that's how I expand their world. I mean, and, you know, to quote yet again Wittgenstein's the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. I mean, I think it's underselling children and it's just wrong not to try and give them that um, gift. So I've, I have had arguments with publishers, but I think, I guess they know what my gig is now and it's sort of, you know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think some people really like it. But, you know, <laughs> I was at Susan right? Paris's... Um, sorry, was that another question? Um, it was Bahali School yesterday, and, and they were talking about going for a walk at night. Um, a child going for a walk at night beside a stream, mm. and she said, "Oh, I, I write for the Ministry of Education, and I think they would be really worried about putting that into a book." Well, because they'd be unsafe. The and Ministry like, is another whole number. They're they're a publisher of a very special hue. Um, yeah. Jesus Christ! Mm. I mean, I think you know um, we we have to um, you know write as have to be who they are and they have to push their publishers and, and you know, help them understand these things. 
Any other questions? Yeah. Kate. Kate to Kate. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm curious, not having read the book, but does Eddie's, um, you know, advanced lexicon mm. alienate him from his peers? And the reason I ask this is because when I grew up, I had parents who used long words, mm, mm. and um, and if I said something that wasn't grat- grammatically correct, I'd be told, oh, you just sound like the kids at school. What they didn't realise, I desperately wanted to sound like the kids at school <laughs> to fit in, and I just wonder how that fit, fits in with mm. um, Eddie. Um, well, Eddie's main attachment is Toss Moore, but he does have other friends. I don't, doesn't, it's not much dealt with, really. But it's clear that he's gravitated towards people who are like him. I, I know that number two, though. I used to sort of... I mean, we all do this, don't we? We have personae for different groups of people. And um, I, too, wanted to be like everyone else. So, um, and look, you know, he's a... He's a character. He's a particular kind of character from a particular circumstance, and that's why he's like that, and that's why the lexicon's like that. Um, and it's not going to be for everyone, mm. and it's not going to describe every... I mean, the other irritating thing about commentary on books sometimes is boys, you know, boys don't speak like that. Well, some of them do. Mm. And so it's sort of witless, really. Um, you have to take every book on its own merits, and it has to be persuasive inside its own covers, doesn't it? Yeah. And, I, you know, I don't... I don't um, scope current teenagers forensically to find out what's going on um, <laughs> right now in their world. It's not about that. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, as much as anything, you're always writing about some part of yourself. But I'm absolutely confident that there are a number of people like I was around now to read um, that. But we're not always reading who we are anyway. We're reading for a rest from ourselves as well. We're reading to expand our lives, not just to have ourselves reflected back at us. So, and, I'd, and, you know, I think it can go too far in the other direction with children, only giving them what mirrors their experience. We have to have, win- you know, it's mirrors and windows in reading for young people. And um, it's about expanding the world as much as anything. So they've got to go to the library and just let them go. That's what I, just let them go. Yeah. Get t- as many books as you like. Enable them to be near books and then let them get them. Yep. Was there any more questions? Probably time to have another drink. I think that we need to make Kate de Goldie a friend, a best friend of the Marlborough Book Festival. Oh, well, that's very kind. Because we love you so. <laughs> Maybe it's always lovely to be here. Thank you, Tanya. Kate works tirelessly to promote books, reading, and literacy in everything that she does. Um, and we love having you here, Kate, because not only do we get to hear about your latest books and writing, but we get to garner some of your extensive wisdom. And I didn't ask what you're reading at the moment. I'm reading um, a children's book that I've never read before um, from published in 1969, called The Amazing Mr. Blunden, which is really good. And it's a time slip story. And it has a full, respectful... It respects its reader. It's got a full vocabulary, complex sentence-making, but it's a very simply wrought story all the same. It's great. And I'm also reading a really great book called Critical Revolutionaries, which is about... Um, literary critics in the 20th century and how they changed the way we read, which is fascinating. 
The Amazing yeah. Mr. Blunder was the first one. Yes, The Amazing yeah. Mr. Blunder and Critical... London. London. Critical Revolutionaries by Ter- Terry... He's a Marxist writer. It's all right. We'll put name. it on the Instagram, Sophie, won't we? Yeah. So go and buy the book. Kate will be available to sign it. Thank, thank you very um, much, everyone. For you. Kia Thank you, audience. That was a fantastic conversation from the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. Tickets are selling fast for this year's event, so head to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. We look forward to seeing you there. Bye for now.